0: at the mystery of unbelief from John chapter 12, verses 37 to 41. Now in our series in John, we are presently studying the the crucial chapter, which is John chapter 12. Just to do a very quick recall, in John, we begin with a dinner party at the house of Simon the leper in the town of Bethany, which was just outside of the outskirts of Jerusalem. And here, as the party goes on, Jesus is anointed. He is anointed by Mary with very expensive perfume, where Jesus, at the same time, has got his smartphone with him and he goes on Facebook and Jesus says, You should not have wasted that much money on me. I have enough money. You should have given it to the poor. And that was Jesus' post on Facebook. The people in Jerusalem are informed through Facebook that it was his intent to enter Jerusalem the next day to celebrate the Jewish Passover. Thousands of Jewish pilgrims waved palms and greeted Jesus with a royal welcome and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. But of course he did not enter Jerusalem to establish His kingdom, but rather he entered Jerusalem to die. Rather than to wear a golden crown, he wore a crown of thorns. And the trigger for this announcement about his death was the arrival of some Gentile Greeks who wanted to see him. And and this was a sure sign that with the rejection by his own. He came to his own, his own rejected him and and by him dying the holy seed, much fruit will come, an amazing harvest among the Gentiles and we are beneficiaries of that, of course. All of this was to the magnificent glory, the amazing glory of the Father Glorify your name. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And this is what we spoke of where we left it last week. Today, today we come to a difficult text. It is sad and it is difficult. It is not difficult to understand it. What it is difficult is to accept it. And I confess to you that... For many days this week, many days I have been troubled by this passage, but I also understand that I'm not free to pick and choose what I will believe in the Bible. And this is one of the beauties of doing an exegetical series, that you follow the Bible verse by verse so you don't just jump to the passages that us preachers like to preach about that will get the most positive reaction from the crowd. The passage gives us an answer as to why some people accept Jesus while others, despite our concerted prayers and concerted efforts, don't. So we must accept this word of God, we must accept it because it is the word of God spoken by Jesus himself in the most solemn week that the universe will ever know. Yes, it is about Israel, but it, it is certainly applicable to us as the children of God as well. So what happened? What happened in this passage? What is, what is going on? Well, verse 37 tells us that they would not... Believe They would not believe. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Fact is, the Jews rejected Jesus in spite of the evidence before them. They rejected their very own Messiah because they dismissed the many signs and wonders that had been done before them. Therefore, it was not the lack of evidence that was the problem but rather the unwillingness to consider the words that Jesus spoke and the, and the works that followed to confirm, to, to give the evidence to back up his words. This is of course nothing new. The generation of Israel in Jesus' day is like the one, the generation of Israel that went through the wilderness for 40 years. And to, this, to that generation, Moses said this, and we go to Deuteronomy 29, verses 3 and 4. With your own eyes you saw these, those great trials, those miraculous signs and great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes at sea, or is that he? This tells us that unbelief is as broad as it is deep, as it is defiant, even when confronted with the most marvelous miracles and signs and wonders that their senses could possibly perceive. You are delivered from Egypt. You walk through the middle of the sea, huge mountains of water either side. You walk on dry land. You get to the other side. And what do you do? You start complaining. Many times I say, Oh Lord, if only, if only. They can see that if only you perform a miracle, if, if, if only you do something amazing, if only you heal them from cancer, if only you bring them from the dead, then people will believe. If only, if only they can see with their eyes, they can see, they can, they can hear, they can touch, they can taste, they can smell, as, as, as long as their senses are amazed, they will believe. Trust me, Lord, they will. No. History is not in our favour, is it? This this natural problem then requires a supernatural explanation which is why we need to go to the Bible and it touches on Because the Bible touches on every issue that affects and and troubles our lives. And one of the biggest dilemmas is the mystery of unbelief. Why are people bored? Those that grow up in a church environment to Christian families. They heard the truth, they've been to church, they've been to youth group and hear the word of God, even go to a Christian school perhaps. And then they get to uni and after a couple of years they're suddenly offended by the truth of God's word, the very truth with which they grew up. truth that once was as bright and clear as the sun. What happened? And they will say, you go and talk to them. Well, they say, I lost my faith. Okay. How did that happen? What, did you just walk down the road one day and just just dropped it? I can't find it anymore. Is that what happened? probably happening is they haven't used their faith in a while. That's the truth, isn't it? I just watched the scenes of uh, an astronaut who spent over about 200 days in outer space. And if you've never been in outer space like me, um, then you should know that uh, in outer space you float. And so your muscles, if you don't use your muscles... They become atrophy. They start to shrink. So they got all these special exercises that they do in the space stations in order to try and, and, and keep your your muscles well toned. But no matter what you try, uh, this they were getting this astronaut out after spending all those days in outer space, and they had to carry her out because she would not be able to. She would not be used to the gravity on Earth. She would just totally collapse. you don't use your faith you will have no strength you will not be able to stand up and then one day you will be challenged through sickness through loss through pain and suddenly you will find what happened I lost my faith where did you lose it no it like I said, you haven't used it. That's the problem. And, 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 or you took it for granted. Uh, you see, because our faith, our faith is, is, is like riding a bicycle. You, you have to keep pedalling. You have to keep moving in a forward direction. Otherwise, if you just stop, you will fall over. You will fall over. You have to keep moving. And what happens once they stop believing in God? They start to try a few things, to experiment. Experiment with things that they are attracted to and, and willing to, they start believing in, in anything which is not just utter nonsense but destructive. Utter nonsense. Do you know that more people in Europe today consult psychics than go to Bible-believing churches? They go to have their palms read and they read horoscopes so they can somebody can tell them about their future. The 19th century Scottish preacher, he actually visited Australia at the turn of the last... Uh, previous century, 19th century, Alexander McLaren said why should we have to depend on Jesus Christ as faith is obedience and submission so faith breeds obedience. Faith breeds obedience. But unbelief leads on to higher handed rebellion. He goes on with dreadful reciprocity of influence. The less one trusts, the more he disobeys. The more he disobeys, the less he trusts. You see? The Apostle Paul said this to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. But a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Today, most people are more than willing to, to grant, I suppose, that Jesus was a wonderful man. They may even accept his many wonderful works. But they are not so willing to accept his words. At least, not all of them. His words have to be properly edited to suit different groups in different settings. Otherwise, they might become offended. Or oh, they will accept his teachings on their need to be compassionate and merciful and forgiving. But they reject all of his teaching about sin and repentance and the cross of Calvary. They like his teaching about heaven and the life after death. You need that, especially in funerals. But they reject out of hand any statements about hell and eternal judgment. Let me ask you, You who are here, do you believe in the biblical Jesus, the real biblical Jesus, or the modified one, the light version, the one moulded to your tastes, to your likes and dislikes, and the one that is usually moulded by the political correctness of the world? Which Jesus do you worship? question. I'll leave that there. So these people in Israel, that first verse, that verse 37 says they, what? They would not believe. But then we get into something where it really gets interesting. They could not believe. Verses 38 to 41. And we're going to read these verses again. So we get it in our heads, what what, what is happening here. This was to fulfil the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn and I would heal them. Make no mistake that the rejection of the Lord by the nation of Israel was a fulfillment of scripture. It wasn't an accident. It was what God had planned all along. It had to happen that way. And, And the first quote that we see here is from Isaiah 53 verse 1, which is, Isaiah 53 is all about the prophecy of the suffering servant. Then from 53 he goes back, all the way back, to the commission, the the calling of the prophet Isaiah in that marvellous chapter 6, where God gives him this magnificent vision of his glory. Oh, what glory that was. So glorious it was that he freaked out. He was fearful. Woe is me, he said. Woe is me. And in, in verses 9 and 10, he tells him to to go after showing him this, this, this magnificent vision and, and preparing him. Woe is me. and says, look, I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to make you pure. I'm going to do something amazing for you. I'm going to strengthen you so you can go. You have to go. And this is what you, I want you to do. Then he told them to go and do something which appears strange to us. Very strange, in fact. He told them to go to preach to Israel, not so that they would repent and be spared, but so that they would be hardened. Why? Why? In preparation for divine judgment that was soon to come, that's the bit that's hard to understand. I thought the message was to go preach the gospel so that people are saved. And this is indeed the purpose in the gospel of John. We know what the purpose of John was in chapter 20, verse 31 that people, to be, uh, John wrote his God's gospel so that people are persuaded to believe in Jesus so that they might find eternal life. So why does John, in chapter 12, bring a passage from Isaiah that appears to work against that very purpose, his very intention, which he tells us what it is? Let's work through some possible reasons why that is so. One possible explanation is that when Jesus speaks in Mark chapter 3 and then in Matthew chapter 12, he talks about something which is, has worried a few of us about the unforgivable sin, which is basically attributing to Satan the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the unforgivable sin. And these people, the Bible tells us, can never be saved. Then in Matthew chapter thirteen, which is, comes after Matthew chapter twelve, Jesus begins. Jesus talks to them in parables. Why? So that they will not understand, they will not believe, and they will not be saved. And when the disciples ask Jesus why he is speaking to them in parables, what does he do? He cites Isaiah chapter six verse 10, as the basis for his actions. So one way to look at it is that this is God's judgment towards rebellious man. That is, because of sinful man, the sinful man did not believe, they therefore could not believe. That's one explanation and it's, it's there. But it is still a hard thing to hear and a harder thing to understand how God can prevent some people from being saved. Where is John 3.16 in all of this? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And where are the many other great texts in Scripture? Like 1 Timothy 2.4, God does not desire the death of the wicked, but that all should come to repentance and knowledge of the truth. Trust me, the statements that are made here were just as controversial then as they have been for the last 2,000 years of Christendom. Hotly debated. Many, many hours of debates. It has, splits. It has split denominations. It has uh, friendships. Many people have argued over this. No one likes, you see, what, what happens is that human beings being so, what to be in charge, masters of their own destiny, they, they don't want to be told that the issue of their own life and, and destiny is not in their hands. No one likes to be told that God will do what he pleases him in regard to the salvation of men. Jesus comes knocking on the door. We don't like the handle being on the outside of the door. We like the handle being on the inside of the door so that when he knocks, we can open it. We can open it. Yet, yet, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 9. Romans 9 verses 14 to 18. Romans nine fourteen to 18. But then shall we say, is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort. But on what? God's mercy. I'll come back to that. The scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens. There's that word. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, just pause there for a tick. In Exodus, there is a time when it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart in two instances. But the other time it says that God... Harden his heart. And you read that and you say, hang on, is it one or the other? He hardens whom he wants to harden. And then one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? Why are we responsible then? For who is able to resist his will? Verse 20, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did I make you like this? And he gives an illustration. Does the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Verse 21. So we went a little bit past those 18. I hope we can all understand that God is sovereign in all matters, especially in matters of salvation. And this should not be a source of aggravation for us, but rather it should actually be a source of comfort to those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. God in his sovereignty is not acting capriciously from his throne. He is rather working out his eternal redemptive purposes in each of us and in everything that we go through in life. Nothing is out It's like saying, "Well, he didn't think of that. He's thought of everything." And everything, good, bad, whatever it is you are going through, it is not. It has not escaped God. God is there. Let me deal with a couple of incorrect conclusions from this from this tremendous truth of the sovereignty of God in salvation. Firstly, if God saves who he wants there is no need then for us to share the gospel with others. Is that what this text says? Which is uh, similar words were spoken to William Carey um, before he went to India. One of uh, the board members of his mission board basically said to him look Look, Mr. William, uh, uh, Mr. Kerry, if, if, if God wants to save the heathen, let him do so. Okay, just let God worry about them. He, thank God he didn't listen to that one, and he still went. We are given the responsibility, the charge, just like Isaiah did. We are given the charge to share the gospel, to go whatever it takes, because God knows who will be saved and we do not. We do not know who is in the book of life. All we can do is pray and plead and plead and pray and share and go and tell so that God may save And in the end, it is not you who saves, it is God. Secondly, the second incorrect conclusion is that God's planning the unbelief and blindness and hardness of Israel does not in any way take away the responsibility of the people of Israel. Remember... The words of Jesus that we looked at just after John 3.16 that marvellous verse John 3.18 which I told you very firmly that you need to read the whole gospel not just a little bit and John 3.18 says this whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God The unbelief of Israel is guilty unbelief. Therefore, our unbelief will also be guilty unbelief. Man's responsibility to believe in Jesus on the one hand and God's sovereignty over who believes in Jesus on the other hand are both true. One does not dismiss the other whether we can understand that or not. Thirdly, we need to recognise that we live in a culture, and I'm bringing this to here and now, we live in a culture of entitlement. In other words, the common thought may be in here, but certainly out there is that this is what I deserve. Now, I'm going to show you some slides that I picked up from social media. Some of the Facebook posts, from my, sometimes from my brethren and sometimes from those who are not part of this church, but a lot of them are Christians who put this stuff up there. i will just share it without giving it much thought. This this idea that I this sense this culture of entitlement it, it, it expresses itself over and over again in in, in, in social media it expresses itself in, in songs in the laws even the laws of the land and even in the pulpits in the pulpits you hear things like I am a child of a sovereign king who wants me to be happy he wants me to have all things And suddenly you walk away from the sermon you just heard in one of these mega churches and things go pear-shaped. You start to doubt his sovereignty and even his love to you. Didn't the pastor just, yeah. Yes, let me tell you, you might have studied, you might have worked, you might have saved, really hard for it, but let me tell you, you still do not deserve it. Let me read you. Go back back a bit. Let's read some of these. Okay. This is one of them. I hope you know that you deserve it all. The best, the most honest, the most beautiful and purest love in the world, not only to be loved by others, but to be loved by Yourself. To look in the mirror and think, oh yes, I'm exactly who I want to be. To speak up and to be proud of yourself. To be brave and open. You deserve the nicest and most caring people to walk into your life. You deserve it all, you know. The whole world. And you should never forget Next, you deserve the world, even if it means giving it to others. No, to yourself. You deserve it. And next, you deserve to be happy. You deserve to live a life you're excited about. Don't let others make you forget that. Don't you dare. Don't you dare ruin my life. Is that what it's like? You don't deserve it. Any of it. Neither you nor me. You don't believe me? Read your Bible. Nowhere does it say that you deserve anything. Least of all, salvation. Because you know what we deserve, right? The only thing I do deserve because of my sinful nature is the wrath of God. I deserve punishment, Yet that punishment was put on Jesus on the cross and because of Jesus he gives me grace which I do not deserve. And through Christ I am blessed beyond measure, I am showered by his grace and as David said, my cup overflows. The Apostle Paul Three times asked, please take it away. Please take it away. Please take it away. And Jesus responded, my grace is sufficient. Basically, no. My grace is already sufficient. My grace is enough. It should be enough. Accept it. But it hurts, I know. I like these words of Martin Luther. And I quote, If God did not bless, not one hair, not a solitary wisp of straw would grow. But there would be an end of everything. At the same time, God wants me to take this stance I would have nothing whatever if I did not plough and sow. I would have nothing whatever, nothing whatever if I did not plough and sow. God does not want to have success without work. And yet, I am not to achieve it by my work. Hear that? He does not want me to sit at home to loathe and to commit matters to God and to wait till a fried chicken flies into my mouth. That would be tempting God. I didn't know they had fried chicken 500 years ago, but uh, way before KFC, right? That's good, eh? And lastly, these words are spoken by Jesus himself, verse uh, 41. Verse 41. I said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Because normally we read Isaiah 6 and we see the picture, it says God. And when we say God, we, we picture the Father. But in John, we see that what, who Isaiah saw was actually Jesus in all his glory. So holy, so holy, so holy that he couldn't even see. He, was, he felt he was doomed. He knew he was doomed by grace. And the point here is that it was the Son of God, not the Father, who spoke these hard words to Isaiah the prophet 700 years before Jesus came to the world as a man to be suffered. To, to suffer and to be crucified. This was the pre-incarnate Christ himself who came, who gave the commission, who gave the words to Isaiah to go and to harden the hearts so that they would not turn and to be saved. It was Jesus Christ who said that he had, had blinded their eyes so that they would not recognize the truth and that's hard. In the current climate on Facebook, I've been accused, and a few of my brethren have been accused of being of not being Christ-like. Well, what Christ do you mean? The politically correct one, or the one, the whole the whole meal, right? Not just the the light version. Sometimes when I'm told that I should be more Christ like it is justified. But other times it comes it comes out simply because I'm quoting scripture as we are now doing. Like President Jefferson, I don't get to write my own Bible, cut and paste the bits that I like and I don't like. It was called the Jefferson Bible. I don't think many people would like the Jefferson Bible today. The The same Jesus who said these words, the same Jesus who said these words, the same Jesus who said these words was the very one who came and gave his life. Therefore, no one can accuse him of being unloving of not giving himself completely for the sake of others. However hard it may be for us to understand why, why God should say that he has blinded men's eyes and deadened their hearts, it should comfort us to realise that it was the Saviour himself, the suffering servant, was the one who uttered these words in Isaiah seven hundred years before and after came and requoted the same words again. Same author, the same person. There is no contradiction. Final words. Maybe some of you will be challenged not to be here next week because of the stuff that I just shared. Uh, you'd have to deal with that with God. Take it up with him. More than that, some of you probably feel very powerless right now because you might have a you maybe have a mother, maybe have a son, or a friend who doesn't know Jesus, and you are concerned about them. And you say, I don't even know what else to do. This person already knows the gospel. I try to talk to them about the gospel, but he already knows it all. He keeps telling me he knows it all, heard it all. I don't know what else to say. And what I want, Pastor, is that you can give me some type of argument that you will just talk to them. Get through with them, some, some, some magic bullet to get through to their hardened hearts. And some have their family in deathbeds. They, they are they're about to die and I'll get calls to go and please talk to them because, so that they could repent. It's not that it's as if people have not shared the gospel with them, but please, anything. And you know, thing is that none of us came to Christ that way with some magic bullet. Most of us heard the gospel once and twice and over and over and then one day something happened that was different. The the scale fell from the eyes. The, the, The heart of stone turning to a heart of flesh. And and we heard the gospel like we had never heard before. Why? How? The words were the same? you, you, You shared the gospel many times, the same words, everything. Why? God. It's all God. Your lost loved ones, your friends, don't need any other power than the crucified power of the Lord. That's what they need. And you're probably still thinking, back of your head, you're going to leave this place and think, it is just unjust for God to choose to save one sinner and pass by another. It is so unfair. You know what? No man ever receives from God anything else, what he deserves and what he himself has asked for. And God never once turned away any sinner who came to him pleading for life. He didn't do it for the man on the cross, and he won't do it for you and me or your loved ones. We need to perhaps take him at his word. Christ said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And you know that he won't lie take him at his word and his words are true his words are true then true today and they will be true tomorrow continue to pray continue to seek continue to share continue to go in his strength and let God do the rest but we have our commission to go don't we? May God's name be glorified in all of this. Amen. Let us sing.